Well, good morning, guys. Thanks so much for being here today. Welcome. We are in chapter 17 of 2 Samuel. And on your tables, uh, you should have handouts that we're going to use to mark up the passage as we go through it. Man, what a week. Some weeks are ample preparation time. You know, you've like got evening after evening, sometimes some time of the day. I'm just thankful I have a lesson today. It's a, it's a work of God that I have one. Hopefully it won't be a total disaster of 2 Samuel 17. But some of you are already praying for me to get the lesson done. And for that, I cannot thank you enough. I just hope to not make a mess of it. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started. Bow your heads, please. Father in heaven, uh, we come into your presence now. And it is good to be in your house amongst your people. Thank you so much for the Lord's day, for your day the Sabbath. Uh, we need it, and I pray that you would use it and use your word to refresh our souls, that we might gain from it the strength to um, have faith, to walk in this world faithfully uh, behind you. And I pray that uh, my brothers and sisters would be encouraged by 2 Samuel 17. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, at this point in our study, the rebellion is fully underway. Absalom, the second son of the king, is first in line now, thanks to the murder of his older brother. And his rebellion has moved well past the point of simple conspiracy from just talk. Two weeks ago, we witnessed Absalom steal off to Hebron in front of his father's, without his father knowing, and recruit David's closest counselor to his cause. There he was crowned king at Hebron, the same city where David was crowned king of Judah. Then, after slandering the king throughout the countryside, the surrounding countryside, Absalom stole the hearts of Israel, as 2 Samuel 15, 6 says. And he rode the momentum all the way to Jerusalem. That's the story of 2 Samuel 16. When he moves into the capital and finishes renovating the palace by taking over his father's harem and violating every last woman in it on the roof of the royal residence in the open air for all the people to hear and see. I tried to choose that wording very carefully because it's grisly and it's awful. And that's the details that we're in in the midst of 2 Samuel right now. Early in this study, we saw a man named Abner come and go. Abner, the man who tried to steal the crown of Israel from Ishbosheth, Saul's oldest uh, remaining son, by sleeping with Saul's former concubine. That was only one woman. Now we have Absalom seizing the royal harem, his father's harem. As if one, was, one wasn't already enough, the fact that these women are his fathers should have caused an outrage of epic proportions in Israel, even by the standards of the law. The sins of the father have not just passed down to the son. They've undergone generational multiplication. What David was up to is tame stuff compared to his first, remaining firstborn son. This Absalom is something, all right. 
Beneath those wavy locks, behind that handsome smile, we find an utter stench, a plague upon Israel. To use a common phrase that we've seen throughout First and Second Samuel, a worthless man. Yet that same aspirer, Absalom, has managed to move from conspiracy to coup to conquest. All thanks to a traitor, David's former advisor, Ahithophel. As a result, Ahith, uh, as a result of Ahithophel's advice, Absalom is one step away from being unchallenged for the new king of Israel. And as a result, Israel's dwelling in the dark with an imposter on the throne and a king again in hiding. Here in 2 Samuel 17, David's reign is on the ropes and his very life is in grave danger. Evil seems to have triumphed and God seems to have gone silent. Or so it would seem. It begs the question, where is God when the nations rage and the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed? What is God's answer to such evil acts amongst his own people? The crowned king, the anointed king's own family. Thankfully, 2 Samuel 17 offers God's response, and it's a great one. The answer we find in this chapter is God's irresistible providence. For here in 2 Samuel 17, we learn this. Even when it seems quiet and inactive, God's providence is always working through humble means to overpower the craftiest schemes of man. Let me say that one more time. Big idea for today. Even when it seems quiet and inactive, God's providence is always working through humble means to overpower the craftiest schemes of man. So let's read our passage. I'm going to start by sec I'm going to go by section today. So our first section is uh, one through four, uh, actually sixteen twenty-three through one through four, and that is Ahithophel's plan. Our second section is going to be Hushai's plan, which goes from verses 5 through 13. And then we're going to wrap up with God's providence, the second half of the chapter, 14 through 29. So, Ahithophel's plan, Hushai's plan, and then God's providence, or the outcome. So if you would, let's take a look at the first five verses, and I'm going to grab a handout, because I don't have one. Does anybody need a handout? We need to do some reshuffling, because I only printed 50 today. Does everyone have one? Okay, good. If you need one, we've got a couple extra in the front. All right, starting in verse 23 at the top. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And all the people's people will be at peace. 
And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. I want to start out with a question today. And the question is, I should have given it to you ahead of time, sorry. Uh, what are the details of Ahithophel's plan? What are the details of Ahithophel's plan? What does he say? And if, if you would be so gracious, I would love to get a little bit of interaction. What are the details of Ahithophel's plan? Did you observe any? It's like four or five or so. 12,000 men. Yeah, not an insignificant number. 12, 12 especially, right? Say it again. One and done. One and done. We're, we're going on a hit for the king, right? Anything else? 12,000 men. We're going tonight. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going at night now, right? At night, in the dark, immediately. So speed and cover of darkness. Hit him while he's down, exactly, before he has time to rally support. Anything else? Say it again. A limited hit, exactly. No innocent lives or bloodshed, right? We're just going to take out the king. You'll be unopposed. You'll be the next heir. Great job, yes. Catch him unaware. Catch him unaware, exactly, when he's not ready. While his guard is down, if we strike the day we're having this conversation... And we launch now, he'll never expect it. He won't have time to group, group his men, form a defensive, and we'll catch him off guard. It'll be quick work. And then, what else? How does it, uh, yeah, Glenn. He's going to do it, absolutely. There's the kicker. We'll get into that a little bit later, but there's the kicker. I will deliver for you uh, as a, the people, as a bride coming home to her husband. Great job. Very, very attentive to detail. Okay, flipping the page. This is an assassination mission. One that utilizes the element of surprise. Ahithophel's going to attack tonight, the same day of the conversation of what to do. While David is least expecting it, just like you guys said, due to his weary and discouraged state. The unexpected nature of such an attack would induce panic, which would lead the people to scatter. And not be one, one force resisting him. Having then divided his enemy's forces, Ahithophel would have an easy time isolating the king and killing just one man. And if all goes according to plan, a kingless people would surrender and submit, following Ahithophel home to the waiting king, where they would have no choice but to be executed in mass. Or follow the new tyrant. Plan's quite brilliant. As the reader has been led to expect. Ahithophel's advice is not to be questioned. It has no, no equal in all of Israel. David is on foot. And he's poorly outfitted. And a quick attack would likely catch him. Before he could cross the Jordan. Which is where he is currently located. Awaiting a report. Both sides also have spies in this story, and so there's an intelligence game going on, just like there always is in the schemes of man. More importantly, Ahithophel's advice has gotten Absalom far. He is right there. If he takes out the king, he's, he is officially next in line. And it probably served David well, quite well also, because Ahithophel was in David's closest counsel. 
Ahithophel served David first. So by going over to Absalom's side, we can't lose sight that this man is turned traitor. This man knows it, too. If you look at the first verse on the handout, 2 Samuel 16, 23, the one that's at the top before the Hushai Saves David title, it says, both David and Absalom follow his counsel as if one had consulted the word of God. Structurally speaking, that verse's placement is actually difficult to determine. And when I was going over commentaries this week, some think it could be the correctly positioned with the last chapter uh, with Absalom on the rooftop as a really ominous note to end that story. Uh, others, though, say this is the verse that's meant to frame today's passage. It could go either way. So what I think is important for a teacher is to read it with both, probably, because it's, it's um, the same sequence of events. We really have a four-week chapter uh, story, sub-story, in the midst of 2 Samuel going on here. And this is episode three today. Next week, we'll see the conclusion of this rebellion. The reliability, either way, the reliability of Ahithophel's advice is compared to the very word of God, the reliability of this man of human achievement apart from God. And this verse sets Ahithophel up for a fall, a divine toppling, if you will. But before we move on, one more question. What, if you go back to Ahithophel's speech, what nouns did he repeat in his speech? There are two nouns in particular that he repeats more than once. If you could look back over it real quick. Two nouns. People. Very good. Who said it? Good job. People. Absolutely. The people are being emphasized. And then who else? Does he say Absalom, 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 Absalom? No. I will, I will, I will, I will. Ahithophel is at the top of his advice. Man, this board moves. Wait for me a sec. Ahithophel's at the top. He's going to bring the people like this to Absalom. Whoops, can't spell. Either way you put it, he's either going to bring Absalom to the people or the people to Absalom, but Ahithophel is at the top of this advice, not Absalom. I will bring the people to you. If you look at uh, the end of verse 3 with me, he repeats the first person pronoun five times and the people three times. And you get the best sense of what he's saying in that last verse of his advice uh, second last, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. What is Ahithophel's mistake? He is the focal point of this plan, even though it's brilliant. Yes, a surprise attack would likely have worked, but Ahithophel's mistake is hubris. He is the focal point. The pride that goes before the fall. 
He puts himself at the center of the action, not Absalom. And the move risks the entire enterprise. Not only that, Ahithophel's counsel against the Lord's anointed invites the wrath of God to come find him. So let's see how it turns out. If you would, turn back to your handout and let's pick up with verse 5. Then Absalom said, oh, and let me actually give you the question ahead of time this time. Sorry, scattered today. Uh, the details of Hushai's plan. It's going to have two parts. The first is why Ahithophel's plan is bad. And the second, Hushai's actual plan. So what are the details of Hushai's plan? Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ahithophel, has, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war, he will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people follow the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. That's where we're going to stop real quick, even though that's mid-paragraph. Draw a slash, if you would, right before 14 at the bottom of the page so you don't lose your spot. Okay, first, why is Ahithophel's advice bad? Well, if you look at verse 7, he's at least smart enough to qualify it. If you come into this occasion and you're like, Hithophil's a terrible advisor, you know you're going against a guy with the perfect track record. So he qualifies it. He says, this time, this time only, Hithophil's advice is bad. He knows the room respects Hithophil, so he qualifies his evaluation. Then in verse 8, your father, your father is a mighty man. His men are mighty He's going to build his counter-speech around David's fighting reputation. Then he even supplies a simile to develop that, that mighty nature. What was it? What does he compare David to? A bear. a bear robbed of her cubs, enraged, right? Hushai's speech appeals to reason and experience. All Israel knows the king has a reputation for being a great warrior. And the similes to bear and then later on to lion are no accident, even though only one comparison is applied to David. I think it's quite intentional 
that Hushai sneaks both into his speech. For it's the bear and lion that provided shepherd boy David with his first tests of strength as he cared for his father's speech. Uh, sheep, goodness. And we know he killed both beasts to rescue those sheep. So first and foremost, Hushai is advising caution. As a spy undercover, one still loyal to the king, he needs to slow things down and buy time for his friend. So not only does Hushai remind his audience of the king's reputation, he also disputes the central point of Ahithophel's plan. Where will David be? Where will David be? If he's the man I know he is, he'll be preparing for battle with the enemy, with the army, not staying in safety with the people. And if he's not, your, uh, and if he's not, your assassination mission will turn into a slaughter of citizens. How's that going to bode for your conspiracy, Absalom? That's the brilliance of Hushai's refutation. Hushai is counseling falsely, of course, for he knows where the king is located. Though the king was willing to fight with the army, his captains did in fact advise him against it. So Hushai is actually totally wrong here on purpose. And his disputant is the most renowned, renowned advisor in Israel. So by appealing to the experience of Israel and Absalom's familiarity with his father, Hushai is trying to lead Absalom to question the king's location and to doubt Ahithophel's advice. Caution, in other words, is the name of the game with this counter. But now, Hushai's actual plan. Did any of you catch the details? If you would, look back over. What are the actual details of his plan? I think it starts at verse 11. But my counsel. What does he encourage Absalom to do? Gather all the people. And Absalom goes. Let's swap out Ahithophel for Absalom at the top. And Absalom will go with the people to defeat the enemy in their very presence and become king of Israel. A swap. Gather all Israel to you and you go out in battle in person. Those particulars reverse the terms of Ahithophel who may actually want the throne himself. Coming back to Israel with 12,000 men while Absalom's just waiting there, it's not exactly a position of power for Absalom, but it is one for Ahithophel. Instead of Ahithophel going out quickly with some, the king would stay home, and, uh, and, and staying home, Hushai advises Absalom to go out himself with everyone, with all. Instead of Ahithophel at the top of the plan, we have Absalom at the top of the plan, receiving the credit, bringing home the bride, and the name there now, is Absalom. In his most brilliant move of all, Hushai appeals to Absalom's vanity. Given that this king, his audience, is known for his good looks, his meticulous yearly primping of his hair, I would say that Hushai knows his audience much better than Absalom does. Better by far than Absalom knows his. 
There's a second appeal here too, one that also differs from Ahithophel's counsel. Did you catch it? Hushai appeals to revenge. Revenge. Do you remember how many were going to be killed in Ahithophel's plan? Just David. How many are killed in Hushai's? Every opponent. Everyone loyal to David. Revenge, in other words, is the dish, the name of the dish that Hushai is serving up to Absalom. Instead of just killing the king, Hushai recommends leaving none of the king's men alive at all, especially his mighty men who've traveled with David when their numbers were about 200 and traveling the countryside before. He knows this song. He knows they're not going to switch. Do you remember how Absalom feels about his dad? He despises him in his heart, just like Michael did. And Hushai knows this. So he appeals to the deepest desires in Absalom's soul, his love of self and his jealousy of his father. He also uses two key similes to sell his case, and both deal with scale. First come, the first one comes in verse 11, when Hushai describes Absalom going out as the sands by the sea for multitude. Instead of waiting at home for Ahithophel to complete the job, Absalom will be visible at the front for all the people to see, getting all the glory just like he wants. And then we hear the second in verse 12. It's a bit more difficult, where Hushai describes the harm Absalom will inflict on David and his men. In 12, he says, And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. As the dew f fell upon the ground is not as clear a metaphor as the sands on the, on the shore of the sea. But the point is essentially the same. Scale will fall upon him and completely overwhelm his forces, covering the whole surface area. Minimal danger to Absalom. No survivors for, among, amongst our opponents. Revenge and safety for this conspiring king. As a conspirer, Absalom wants glory with minimal danger because he already knows he's in it as a traitor. And this seems to be the plan to secure it. By his conclusion, Hushai has matched metaphor to message as he tries to persuade Absalom to act with caution to secure glory for himself and victory over his father. Man, it's a mess. It's such a mess. What will be the verdict? Whose advice will Absalom follow? Let's read our final section, and we'll be wrap this up. Bottom of the page where you put that slash at 14. This time, what are the details of God's plan? We got men conspiring. We got politicians scheming. What does God ordain is the question. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord, and underline this verse, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, 
Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were awaiting in Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. Nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Well, I didn't think I was going to be the one to do it, brothers and sisters, as one of the elders in our teaching rotation has a reputation for finding the most arcane and obscure details week after week in this class, to my utter delight. But here it is, our old friend, the chiasm, right here on the left. Now, for those of you who need a refresher, the chiasm is a literary device, common, I don't know if everybody can actually see it. Can you guys see it over here? Because it's not necessarily the best angle, I don't want to move it too far. For those of you who need a refresher, the chiasm is a literary device, one especially common in Hebrew literature, in which structuring is used to point out centrality. Say that again. Structuring and parallelism is used to point in to a central point. Uh, where was I? Emphasis, in other words. While Ralph Davis, whose commentary is so invaluable to us during this series, he includes this chiasm in his commentary... He's not fully certain it's intended by the author, so neither am I. But it's mostly there. You could see bookended events with Ahithophel's advice and Ahithophel's end at 1 and 7. You could see in the middle Hushai's advice and Hushai's report 
And you could clearly see the sentence you underlined, Yahweh's secret, in verse 14. It is a little bit of an unevenness to have two and six with Absalom's inquiry and David's informants. There is information linking those two, but it's a bit of a stretch. And so Davis is like, I can't totally sign off on it. But either way, the middle of this verse, the middle of this episode is Yahweh's secret in verse 14. And here's what that verse says. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Good in this sense, as David points out, is not moral goodness, uh, virtue. Instead, it's more like the word effective, like um, that was a really good hit in baseball or something like that. At the end of the verse, harm can also be translated, as Davis points out, as disaster. And I like that translation a much, much better for two reasons. One, Ahithophel is not virtuous. We know that. He's a very skilled advisor in political scheming, but he's a traitor to David and possibly an advisor to the throne. We don't need the confusion associated with him being virtuous. He's not. Second, the word disaster is better because it implies more scale. Um, God is not simply wanting Absalom to feel pain. He's wanting to thwart plans in this passage, right? There is a political gamesmanship going on here that's bigger than Absalom. And God is thwarting those plans. So when it says disaster upon Absalom, I like it better because it's saying he's foiling his plans. He's causing them to be ruined. So how does God's providence do it? How does he bring disaster? What details did you observe? How does God thwart the plans of evil? It's kind of more event-based as we're flying to the finish here. How does God thwart the plans of evil? First, he uses friends, doesn't he? Loyal friends. We've already seen that with Hushai, David's loyal friend. But who else plays an important role in this part of the story? Crucial part of the story. The messengers, spies, and we learn their names, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. What is their mission? To inform David to cross the river quickly. Danger was rampant even after Hushai's advice succeeds. There's still a giant army coming for David. It's not as if, oh, well, David's safe now. Information has to be conveyed to David to get across the Jordan. And those spies are quickly in danger after they're spotted. The author gives us a delightful bit of cat and mouse to continue the story and finish it off. So just before they're apprehended... Who else gets involved? What's another detail of God's providence here? Who helps? Um, yeah, the woman who's managing this, this house. We don't even learn her name. A man at Baharim has a house with a courtyard that has a well in it. And the female servant there is involved in the relay of information because David's men can't be seen in the city. So, this woman informs David's spies of Hushai's report and then hides them in a well before covering them with grain. Where have we seen that in Scripture before? More specifically, who hid the Hebrew spies before? 
Rahab, exactly, Mary Hamdi. Rahab was another woman who did hide, hid Hebrew spies from an enemy. Yet unlike her, we don't even learn this woman's name. She's just a servant. One whose job requires her to visit the same well for water every single day. So she has this, this very consistent work rhythm where it's very normal to see this woman coming to the well and going back home, coming to the well and going back home. Perfect person 